Welcome to the Higher Learning Podcast with me, Oz Rashid. Our podcast focuses on the one thing every business leader must excel at when building a high-performance team, effective hiring. Identifying high performers that fit your team is not just an HR responsibility. It impacts every area of the business and all hiring leaders in your company. We're here to have an honest and entertaining conversation with different business leaders from a variety of industries to learn about new ways of identifying and engaging top talent in today's business environment. I'm your host, Oz Rashid. Hi, welcome to Higher Learning. I am Oz Rashid, founder and CEO of MSH Talent and Technology Solutions. Today with me, I have Sam Jotty. He is the Chief Information Officer at ADT Security. How are you doing today, Sam? I'm doing great, Oz. Thanks for the invite. Of course, of course. I got to tell you, this is our inaugural podcast. So one day in the near future, when this is one of the most downloaded podcasts on Spotify and Apple, we'll be able to say that you are our first. So I'm very, very grateful for that. I'm humbled to be the the first guest here and look forward to the podcast exploding. Sure. What we do here on this podcast, we want to demystify some things from a corporate sense, right? I think there's a lot of people that are listening that don't know what every company does or how they make money or what a typical CIO might do. So I want to start there. I want to ask you a little bit about traditionally, what does a CIO do? And then maybe how does that differ in terms of your role with ADT? Yeah. So typically, the CIO stands for Chief Information Officer. Ultimately, they're responsible typically for all the technology within the four walls, if you want to call that, of their business. So whether that's networks, data centers, PCs, but it could also be obviously all of their applications and their data warehouse their SOX compliance, their project management, all of those things are what a CIO is typically responsible for. In my case, I'm actually also an additionally responsible really for the transformation of ADT from being what I would call a brick and mortar, 147-year-old business into a digitally customer frictionless experience. And so how do we become a digitally-based company versus a brick and mortar-based company? Instead of calling us and rolling out a truck, how do you, you know, grab your phone, click a few buttons and get the service that you need and the kind of the safety and protection that you're looking for. Yeah, I love that. Real quickly, some people have heard the term CIO, they've heard the term CTO. In your mind, how do those two positions typically differentiate? It depends on the industry in many instances of what that looks like. If you're in the tech industry, you know, the CTO is typically kind of your chief architect. But when you get into like product and services organizations, your chief technology officer is typically the person responsible for the product that the end user is buying. So in ADT's instance, our chief technology officer being Raya, she would be responsible for the product that's installed in your home, your control panel, your sensors, your cameras around that, where I would be responsible for the actual alarm events and then all of the systems to support that, whether it be your billing relationship, whether it be a new sale or any of the order to cash platforms. Yeah, fantastic. I just so happen to be a longtime ADT customer. I do use the the Pulse product, so I've been using that product for quite some time, and I've seen some incredible innovations there, so that's awesome. I'm going to challenge you a little bit here because I want you to be as simple with this explanation as possible, and obviously share what you can share, but I do want you to explain it to me like I'm a 10-year-old. How does ADT make money? Yeah, uh, pretty simply, actually, how ADT makes money is it makes money off the recurring revenue and the monthly charge that a customer pays. So the monthly bill that the customer pays, that's where we make our money. We actually lose money on the installation. So when you initially get your alarm system, it costs us more money for labor and part to implement and, and install that system. And so we recuperate our money through that monthly recurring revenue. 
So that's how we basically make money is, is on our recurring revenue. Now we have other sides of our business with bot and solar. We have commercial. So there's some other nuances that go into this. But for the most part, the majority of our customers are residential customers. And therefore, it's that monthly recurring revenue that, that ultimately is the reason we become profitable. So when I pay my monthly bill to ADT, that's typically kind of the main kind of center of revenue that comes in for the company, correct? Yeah, exactly. That's fantastic. That is incredible insight into an industry that I don't know a lot of people have thought a lot about. And I personally, you're absolutely right. I had a false alarm last night. One of my children set it off and I got a text and they're saying, hey, you turned this off so quickly that if this was a real issue, we would be you know, calling or sending the police, but we're sending an automated response because you turned it off so quickly. So I think that's really smart. That's one of the ways technology disrupts every industry and really improves the experience for customers. So I appreciate that explanation. That's some good stuff right there. Now, listen, one of the main reasons that people listen to this show and one of my main passions is around hiring. That's something I've talked with you about in the past. So one of the things that we're trying to do on this podcast is learn what are kind of the best practices? What are the key through lines for people who've done hundreds, if not thousands of hires throughout their career, right? As somebody that's at the CIO level, I'm sure you've hired, you know, if not hundreds, thousands of people. And I want to get into a little bit of some of those best practices. So the first question I got for you is maybe in a few sentences, you know, tell me what your overall hiring philosophy is, no matter what position you're hiring for. Yeah, this is an easy one for me because it's character and aptitude over aptitude. So yes, you got to have an aptitude. You got to have some experience, some competence, depending on what the role is. But I want to hire people with the right character and the right attitude. So with that, I'm looking for people that have learning agility, learning curiosity, ability to execute and deliver. What are their characters? What are the things in their personal life that actually will equate to what they do on their day-to-day work life? Because they're blended together, especially in today's world where we've gone to a work from home. You got your personal life and your work life blended together. So your character matters. And so to me, character and attitude, I'll hire over that than I will the genius. Yeah, I love that. My, my question for you would be sometimes you have 30 minutes to an hour, right? And I'm guessing you're not asking me, you know, do you have good character in terms of people you're interviewing? What are some of the ways that you're identifying what somebody's character is without maybe directly asking them in an interview? Yeah, it is tough and it's challenging and you're trying to understand a human being within 30 minutes to an hour, whether or not they're a good fit for your organization and whether or not they have the kind of the chops, so to speak, to do the job that you're hiring for. So it's really, really a challenging piece. There's more to it than just the interview, but the interview in itself, then I start to ask questions such as, what is your personal challenge that interact with other people? So then based on that answer, I can follow up and ask further questions that gets me into the root of their character a little bit. Yeah, that's fantastic. So I'm interested. You've obviously done lots and lots of interviews. You don't got to name names, but is there maybe a specific interview that stands out to you, one that was super memorable in terms of somebody you were interviewing? Well, there's probably a couple, but one in particular is, believe it or not, I had an individual that literally came to the interview on drugs and had it on their lips, some white powder that was actually on their lips. That is pretty memorable. Safe to say that that interview lasted about five minutes and you know, kind of walked them out the building. Sounds like a character. That might be what you were talking about in terms of character issue, right? Absolutely. That was an easy note, no need to hire. On the good experience side of that, had an individual that was so prepared for understanding the culture of the company, the references that they had done, the strategy, our 10K report, what our earnings call, they had done so much research on the company. It was so impressive to see somebody that spent that time understanding 
not only the company, but even me personally and did research on myself and understanding that to the point where they didn't research to the people that I had worked with in the past and called them up to see if I was a good boss. That was impressive. Why was it impressive? Because way it told me that they were serious about the opportunity, but two, they cared about not only the company they're going to go work for, but the person they're going to go work for. And I, I would tell you from a career advice standpoint, the person that manages your brand the most, your manager. And I think most people don't fully appreciate and understand that who your manager is matters, especially in corporate America. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Early on in my career, when I first started and I was I moved out of technology and I got into recruiting, I realized that the highest correlation of satisfaction in the job is not compensation. It's not even challenge of the role or the company or the, even the company culture. It's your direct manager. I've seen a lot of people have everything you could ever want in a role, but they didn't get along with their manager. And so they were very short time for that company and vice versa too. I've seen situations where it seems like all, all kind of mitigating factors and circumstances are tough, but you have a manager that you really align with and that you believe in and that believes in you and you'll stay at that company much longer. And so that's one of the things that I think is a real key correlation on your call out. And listen, anybody who's listening, who's getting ready to go to an interview, right? And that could be any of us at any given time. Preparation, super important. Putting in that prep work, doing that, whether it be sports, whether it be getting ready for a big presentation or getting ready for a big interview, preparation always stands out. So I love that you said that. Is there any interview, whether it be academic or professionally that you went on, that you really remember either for good or bad reasons? Sometimes you just click with people, same similar thoughts. It could be diverse background, but it's you have the same similar thoughts in terms of where you want to either take a company, take a role, take an opportunity. And so I had a really great experience that it didn't feel like an interview. It felt like two people in a coffee shop talking about what it is that could be done and what was the art of the possible around this. But then going down to specifics around how you would achieve that and how maybe my background fit that opportunity really well. And so I think from a positive standpoint, it's really building that rapport. And when the candidate in this instance, me feeling that, it opened me up to very transparent conversations, good and bad, allowed me to be more freely open with the concerns that I might've had with the company because you have this natural rapport and I didn't feel like I was trying to answer a test. I felt like I was evaluating the opportunity while they were evaluating me for the opportunity. And so it felt like a mutual interview versus a one-way interview. And so that went really, really well. They probably got the best of me and probably got to understand the best of my character to help in that decision. On the flip side, the worst interview I've actually been a part of and had to deal with was I literally did not say a single word in the interview. I took a test, I took a written test, which is fine, that can be okay. I turned the piece of paper in and the person told me about themselves for about 25 minutes, I shook their hands and left. Ironically, I actually got the job offer, but there was zero chance I was accepting that job because they knew nothing about me other than some written test that I took. Didn't ask a single question. And that was the hiring manager. And I'm like, okay. One of the things that is ideal is you walk into an interview already being pre-qualified for the work. You've already satisfied what the objectives of this job would be. And now you're getting the opportunity to build a rapport, to build a relationship. And hopefully that's a two-way conversation. I've also heard, and I'd like to get your opinion on this, people suggest, I love doing interviews over lunch or over dinner because you create that more casual environment. Is that something you've seen and done in your career? And how do you feel about that in particular? I like to. I usually like to do that depending on the level of the role. I like to do it as a second interview, if possible. It's own kind of 
feelings that you get, that camaraderie around that. You also get to see what people order, how they handle themselves in a restaurant, how they handle themselves with other guests, maybe with the waitress. So you get a different perspective, again, of that person's character in that kind of setting. So, so yeah, I mean, I would say if time permits, in today's world with it being so remote, it's a little bit tougher, but as time permits, yeah, it doesn't even have to be. It could be a coffee shop. Heck, it could be a bowling alley. It could be anywhere. But getting somebody out of their natural state and making it feel like it's an interview and more like it's two people getting together to discuss really opens up the conversation and the flow. It allows you to kind of get under the hood, so to speak, of the individual and understand what is it in that engine that makes them tick. Yeah. I mean, you got me thinking. It's been a while since I went on an interview, but I'm such a fast eater. I probably got to measure my eating when I go out or maybe just get like a quesadilla or something not too sloppy because I'd be worried how I'd come across. But I hear you loud and clear. I think there's a lot of cues that you can pick up on outside of an office environment that can really help you make a determination if somebody's a good fit. I don't want to give away all your secrets, but you know what? You did say that the best interviews are the ones that come prepared. So if they listen to this podcast and get some good intel, kudos to them, right? So I want to ask you, do you have any favorite questions that you may be asked that are kind of your go-tos? Yeah, I have a couple. One go-to is because I want to understand how somebody analytically thinks. And I know you're familiar with this question, but you know, if I asked you how many pizzas were delivered in the state of Florida, how would you get And you can pick any state and it doesn't have to be pizza, but how would you go about doing that? Right. So there's a lot that goes into that question. I, I get to learn mostly about their analytical thinking. And then the second one I, I mentioned earlier, which is, you know, tell me a personal challenge that you've had in your life. And then I'll ask, how did you overcome it? And what I'm trying to find out there again is on a network versus how much they rely on their own research or a combination of both. Those tell me a lot about an individual. Me being in the technology world, being a CIO, I'm always looking for those those self-starters, that learning agility, high analytical skill sets. And that's not for every role and that's not for every person. There's different characters you need for different roles. But me being in the technology world, that learning curiosity, learning agility and analytical skills is really important. Yeah, I love that. I'm going to use that pizza one. That's a good one. I don't hope you don't mind if I rip that off. I like that. I'm going to definitely use that in my next interview. Listen, we all miss sometimes when it comes to hiring, right? We all think somebody, all that glitters is gold and it's a great interview and then you hire them and it doesn't work out, right? Whether it be one week, six months, one year later, if you miss on somebody, what is it you typically would have missed on the interview that maybe you look back and say, I wish I would have refocused on that? Yeah, I think it's actually a pretty consistent theme for me when I miss. I, I think I'm looking for character, as I mentioned, right? And I'm looking for their attitude. But what I tend to miss in those instances is how do they actually execute? What's their ability to apply their emotional intelligence as well as their IQ, their actual intelligence, and how do they apply it, right? And that application of their character, who they are, what they are, sometimes I tend to miss that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an area where I probably need to do a better job, quite frankly, in the interview process, making sure can this person execute on what it is that they say? You know, there's only one thing better than a great idea, and that's execution on that idea. And we mm-hmm. need people who can execute. So I don't need all ideation. Now, now, when you round out a team, sometimes you do need that strategic, visionary thinking person, but you better have somebody who can execute and deliver. And, and obviously, the home run is we can get somebody who can do both which is rare in the technology world. But I think that's probably the common theme for me. Yeah, I really love that. I mean, I've hired people in the past that seem to have a high intelligence quotient and a high emotional quotient. And then for whatever reason, it didn't work out. 
So maybe we need a third one. We need an application quotient, the ability to take these great gifts you have emotionally and intellectually and actually apply them to something that's building a company, building your career, providing value. So I absolutely love that. And I think that I think that's something that a lot of people miss on and something that we can rethink about when we go through a traditional interview process. How can we better understand if is this person as good as they sound? How do I know that they're going to apply what I'm hearing? I really love that. Last one around the interviewing experience that I want to I want to get an idea from you around. You know, we all talk about the importance of a great experience. You know, one of the things that I talk to customers about a lot is that one of the most underrated forms of marketing is your application process, your interview process, right? Because if you have a bad experience interviewing for a company or you don't hear back from a company or the company ghosts you as so often we hear about, you know, not only does that impact your desire to work at that company, not only if your friend comes up to you and says, should I work at that company? And you would tell them probably no, but you know what? It might also impact your feeling about them as a consumer, right? If it's a B2C company, you might not want to buy their products if you have a bad experience. And so, I tend to think that experience is something that people don't think enough about because it's not something that you see A to B. I'm interested, why do you think, if you do think, an experience for any candidate, hiring or not hiring, is important for you and for your company's brand? I actually agree with everything you said there. And I would say that the interview experience is actually a telltale sign to the culture of the company. And so it does impact your brand to every candidate that applies, every candidate that interviews. And to your point, it it even potentially impacts their buying decisions beyond the job. I think it is critically important. And I think most companies get it wrong. They don't put the priority on it. The most important situation you have is hiring of talent. It's the reason, quite frankly, I'm sitting in the CIO seat today of ADT, because I understand the importance of talent and putting the right talent around you. No one individual makes a company successful. It takes all of the individuals to make that successful. And so hiring is such an important thing. So then it comes down to how do you make that individual candidate feel like they're the most important person at that moment? No distractions on the interview, timely feedback, good or bad, simplifying and making the experience more frictionless. Many deals are lost even though there's a happy marriage between candidate and company that wants to happen because of time. Time fills these deals. Companies don't respond fast enough to the offer, right? Or they try to lowball the offer, even though they know they're going to do better on it. You also kind of tainted their experience. Everything is a negotiation is how they feel at that moment in time. When the reality is you are actually really, really willing to go to 105. So why don't you just off the 100 right off the bat, say we're really looking forward to to having you on board, bringing person takes that, takes a phone call, answers an email. You just don't feel that important. You don't feel the roles that important around that. So I think as a hiring manager, it's really important to say, is this important? If you're going to take time out of your day to interview somebody for that job, then it better be the most important hour that you have. Because that one hour with that one individual could end up being the difference between being successful in your role and not being successful in your role or success of a project or success of your department. One individual is like, you know, throwing a pebble into the ocean and having it turn into a tidal wave. So while one individual doesn't make the entire team, it can make the difference for your entire team. So you should treat it that way. I would tell you one of my biggest pet peeves is when a role is open for 90 days and it doesn't get closed. Huge pet peeve of mine. First thing I do to my staff is I tell them, you clearly don't need this And I go, oh, no, I do. I'm like, well, you've lived 90 days without it. So what do you need the role for? 
you're still managing without this. So I would say another thing is being timely with everything that you do. I think recruitment companies as well as candidates don't get the necessary respect that they need in terms of scheduling. They get bumped the most often for other things when the reality of the situation is it's probably the most important decision you're going to make. This episode is brought to you by MSH. MSH is an innovative professional services and SaaS organization serving customers ranging from startups to the Fortune 100. A truly global company operating in more than 35 markets across three different continents, MSH partners with their customers to build the teams that solve their biggest and most complex business challenges. Find out more at talentmsh.com. Yeah. You're absolutely preaching to the choir. I love what you said about the experience and the individual experience. And listen, I know this firsthand. When I would work for you as a client about 10 years ago, I remember we would send in candidates to talk to you and they would come back calling afterwards. Oh, it was such a great interview. Sam was so happy and so friendly. And I knew in my head, I'm not sure. Sam gives that feeling to almost everybody he interviews, whether they, he loves them or he doesn't. So that really stands out because every one of those people left floating, even if they got the role or not, And I think that is super important. And you got a great poker face, which we'll come back to in a little bit. But I think that's a big credit to you. And and your thoughts on being a people leader and how important that is to your success is one of the reasons that I've always really looked up to you as somebody that really knows what you're doing in the people space, because that's obviously a big passion of mine. And I think whether you're a CFO or a CIO or a CMO or CEO, that understanding of the importance of hiring that experience is, is super, super important. So I love to hear that. All right. So I want to hear a little bit now about you and give our listeners a little insight into you. So I'm interested to know, you gave us a little bit about what a CIO does and what you do in your CIO role at ADT. Tell me a little bit about what a day in the life and your job is like. What takes up your day? What are you doing? You know, is it brand new every day or is it kind of monotonous? Give me an idea of what your typical day would entail. My typical day is is filled with emails and meetings. And then the IMs that come in, instant messages that come in as well. And sometimes the text messages and phone calls. I think that's pretty typical, probably for most people. For executives, it's even more so because everybody's fighting for your time. And so everybody wants a a piece of your time, whether it's direction setting, whether it's a decision that needs to be made to go through that. So I think that's pretty typical. Now, what the day consists of actually is different every day. And it just depends on the situation that's going on. Being in charge of the technology inside the four walls, it also means that when problems happen, I, I need to be available to make decisions or to coordinate that that effort or to express upon the team members the importance of this issue because they might not have the business context of why this application being slow, how it's impacting 3,000 of our technicians, right? They don't fully understand the context of that. So sometimes it's providing that context. I think the toughest part is the balancing between production support, project-based work, strategy and alignment with the business, vendor and technology and staying on the leading edge of what technology can do your time with your vendors, time with your employees, time to interview, all of those different things, that can be really tough on a day-to-day basis. And so for me, I would say that the thing that happens every morning is rebalancing of my schedule. I would love to get more consistent. It's probably on me to become more consistent as a leader and make sure my weeks are a little bit more consistent, but they really haven't been. Being in this role, I find my day and my weeks shift. Sometimes I'm supposed to be in New York. I end up being in Dallas. That happens. More often than than I would care, I tend to think it's because we don't plan as well as an organization and myself, you know, as the first one at, at the top of that. At the end of the day, what happens is life happens and life happens personally and professionally. 
And you just got to be flexible when it goes up. But I would say that problem solving and planning, right? Those are the two things that on a day-to-day basis, I'm constantly doing, trying to solve problems and trying to plan for what, what we need to be doing next to deliver the most value to the organization and obviously to our shareholders and stakeholders. Yeah, I listen. I think we're all creatures of habit to some degree, but also variety is the spice of life. So the ability to not know what's coming in the given day, I think can be exciting. And I know that sometimes some roles that are really monotonous and day in and day out don't really look that different and they all kind of blend together can lead to job dissatisfaction. So as much as you'd like there to be more structure, I'm sure there's a little bit of excitement that comes with the not knowing what every day is going to entail. And you have so much on your plate that I imagine that uh, sometimes it's big things, sometimes it's little things, but you're probably getting a lot of different cannonballs shot at you in any given day. And so I can definitely empathize with the fact that maybe a little more structure would make that a little bit easier to digest. I'm interested how much you talk to your direct reports versus the rest of the organization. Do you find that you're messaging out to the rest of the organization or the IT organization in particular, or are you typically pushing that down through the conversations of your direct reports and, and having them have those conversations with their team? Yeah, this is a great one. There's a balance of both for me. I'm the type of person as a leader that I want to have, and we all talk about it, and everybody says an open door policy, but what does that really mean? I had an intern reach out to me via instant message, said, hey, I saw that you were in town. Do you have time for me? And I said, sure, why don't we go have lunch together, right? So it doesn't matter the level that they're at. It doesn't mean not the back of the jersey. So the front of the jersey says ADT. Back of the jersey might have my department, my name, my title, whatever it is. It doesn't matter. It only matters about the front of the jersey. And the front of the jersey matters to everybody in the company and our, our shareholders and stakeholders. And so it's how do I make time for everybody? So there's newsletters that goes out. I do a monthly town hall. I do some skip levels. I talk to a lot of the different folks. Now, do I get to everybody? I don't. I wish I could. You just don't have enough time in the day. I have about a thousand resources underneath me. It's just not even a feasible thing to be able to meet with each of them on a regular basis. So some of the messaging has to go down through my direct reports and working with them. I do spend a considerable amount of time with my direct reports. I have my staff call as usual. I have meetings throughout the week, but then I also try to do a half an hour to one hour one-on-one with them as well and get them the personal time that I think they need. And that personal time is to help them grow personally and professionally in their career as well. So it's not just about the work. Yes, we'll talk about the work, but we'll also talk about what it is that they can improve on. What is it that they can make decisions on their own about? How do they go about being successful in their career as well as their job? And I think that's really important to give satisfaction to them that I'm not a leader that's just looking out to, hey, did we get this task and activity done? Did we drive this specific result? No, it's about you as an individual, right? How are you growing and developing as an individual? How is that contributing to your personal career success? And then we can talk about the tasks and activities. And what I found in my career is that we tend not to solicit feedback for those that report to you. And I think that's another area, you know, access to myself and continue to push the culture of the organization to the direction that we want it to go. Yeah, I love that. I've heard of different executives like setting an hour every day or every week on their calendar for office hours and then letting people schedule 10 minute increments where you know anybody has those slots get filled up can use that time. You know what I hear a lot out of your answers, a lot of humbleness, a lot of servant leadership. You definitely understand that you're in the position you're in and the company's in the position it's in because of the people, the people you've hired, the people that you're developed and the people that hopefully you retain and stay with your company for a long time. So you got that part figured out, it sounds like, man. So I'm really appreciative of that answer. And thank you so much for the level of detail there. I also want to know, what are you working on that you're really excited about right now? What's getting you up out of bed in the morning? It's kind of really moving the needle for you. 
Yeah, I mentioned in the beginning that as the CIO, I'm also kind of responsible for the transformation of the business to a digitally experienced business. So what gets me up is there's so many challenges that need to be solved to do that. The number one challenge, interestingly enough, is not the technology transformation. It's the people and mindset transformation. So it's really exciting for me to figure out how do I change our culture? How do I win the hearts and minds of the resources that want to accomplish the mission and drive a frictionless customer experience? How do we use AI and ML and data to be data-driven and data-first in what we're doing and automate so many of the things that are just manually intensive within our business today and drive automation and kind of demanding excellence when it comes to that? So to me, the challenge of taking literally a hundred year old equipment and changing it into modern day technology and modern day experiences. So I like to think of, of ADT as maybe that blockbuster in the nineties. How do I make it become that, you know, Amazon prime or Netflix of today's world? Fantastic. That's awesome. You sounds like you guys have a lot of exciting things going out there. I love the analogy of the, the blockbuster to the Amazon prime and Netflix and technology is at the center of that. And you're leading like the four walls or the technology within the four walls of that company. So awesome, awesome stuff. All right. We have something we like to do here on the Higher Learning Podcast where we go into your old LinkedIn posts and we want to see some of the things you've posted in the past and get an idea of what you were thinking at the time when you posted this. So the one I'm looking at right now, it looks like you were on a podcast with Chris Zordich and there's a picture of you holding up a bracelet. So first off, I want to understand a little bit about what this podcast is and how you got on there. Honestly, I'm feeling a little bit insecure now because I know that you've been on other podcasts, so I hope I'm holding up my end of the bargain. But tell me a little bit about Chris's podcast and then what this picture is of you and the bracelet that you're holding up. Yeah, so Chris Sorich, former captain of the Notre Dame football team in the mid to late 90s, won a national championship, the last national championship of the University of Notre Dame. He also played for the Chicago Bears. Interestingly enough, I met Chris Sorich through Twitter. So I had replied to something and he replied back and then we, you know, followed each other and then he direct messaged me. And, and for about a year, you know, we just kind of pinged each other on just different topics and so forth. And he had found out that I also walked on to the University of Notre Dame football team. So his podcast, you know, focuses on leadership and focuses on, you know, Notre Dame in particular. And then a lot of the ex-football players, it goes beyond that coaches and, and other people that, that have been on there. So it focused on Notre Dame grads. And so it was a unique opportunity. I think Chris said it, and I haven't done any of the research on it, but he said he, he thinks that I'm a, the only University of Notre Dame grad with also that bracelet that you're talking about ends up being a World Series of Poker bracelet. I won the World Series of Poker in 2014, and that, that was a very exciting opportunity to, to go win that. One of, you know, maybe about a, you know, less than a thousand people on the planet that can say that they've won that kind of fits with my personality of trying to read people at the same time using analytics and math behind the, the game and trying to blend both of those into winning, obviously. All right. So the podcast was, was fantastic. For those that get an opportunity, enjoy Notre Dame football, enjoy leadership, go follow Chris Zorich. Sure he'd appreciate that. Great guy. Great interview. Really enjoyed the opportunity to get to know him. Yeah. I'm sure he'd appreciate me not adding a D to his last name. So Chris Zorich, got it. Main event. Now, I got to ask you, I guess uh, my understanding of the World Series of Poker is there's a lots of events, right? So there's the one that we see on TV. Is that the one you won or was it one of the, was it in Vegas? Help us understand that. The World Series of Poker is actually a series. So it's the World Series of Poker. So there's a series of actual games, different variants of poker, as you know, people will know when they're playing as a kid, whether it's five card draw, 
five card stud. I, I play No Limit Hold'em, which is what the main event is as well. It was a preliminary event. It was a $1,500, so $1,500 buy-in event. It was a preliminary event. There's you know anywhere from 60 to 70 total events in the World Series for the given year. It varies. It's grown over the last several years. And the main event is the one that you see on TV. That's the one that you know you win 10 million bucks typically if you win it. Look forward someday to, to maybe do that. It takes a lot of luck to go do that. Unfortunately, this year I didn't get a chance to play. Work kept me busy. You know, so as you prioritize your life, that was unfortunately not one of the ones that made the list of things to do in 2022. You'll get there. When you win it, we're going to have you back on the podcast to talk about the big win there. Do you still play poker? Is that something that's still a part of your life, even you know, recreationally? Definitely still a hobby. It's, it's probably my number one hobby and really enjoy doing it. I haven't been able to play a lot. COVID changed a lot. I'm not you know, a big fan of playing online poker. I use online poker to, to basically learn and study the game. I enjoy the live aspect of it, the social aspect of it. Kind of where I grew up in the streets of playing poker is, is live. So live poker for me is what I enjoy. And obviously with COVID hitting, it's been a pretty big struggle. So look forward to playing a little bit more as, as I get more free time. Just write a note here. Do not accept poker night invite from Sam because he'll take all your money. So I got that written down here. I, I know that now. I don't, want, I don't want to mess with a bracelet winner. So really, that's awesome to hear, man. That is such a cool part of your story. Congrats on that. And I'll definitely be following to see if you, you win any more bracelets. That's awesome. All right, last question. This is an important one. If you could amplify one bit of career advice, just a little nugget for our listeners that you didn't know when you started your career, but that you know now, what would that be? Mm, really good question. I would say play to your strengths instead of always trying to close the gap on your weaknesses. I would say look at who you are as a person, look at what it is that you do well, and play to those strengths, especially early in your career. It'll allow you the opportunities to differentiate yourself from your peers because you're playing to your strengths. And as time goes on, you'll you figure out what gaps you need to close that are required. But I think many times people look at what it is they do well, what it is that they don't do well, and everybody gives them the training development on what they don't do well. And I would tell you, amplify your strengths. Look at it, what it is that you do well, and play to that. And, and I think you'll find yourself grow faster in your career and be more satisfied, quite frankly. That's fantastic. Sam, earlier on in your career, were you trying to fix maybe kind of some of the down areas or the areas that you wanted to work on? Or did you amplify your strengths? I naturally a type of person that amplifies my strengths. I just kind of play towards that. But honestly, all of my training development had to do with my weaknesses. And that's what my managers were telling me. That's what my peers would tell me. Hey, you need to learn this. You need to you know, have more depth there. You need to pick these things up. These are the areas of your weaknesses. But as I realized my success in my career it ended up being everything that I played in my strengths. I mean, I think as we talked here, a lot of what I, I consider to be some of my strengths always have opportunity to improve that strength. But it's about, you know, motivating people, leading people, you know, finding the right people. And to me, doing something together is more fun than doing something on my own. So we accomplish more than just I. So if you want to go fast, do it yourself. If you want to go far, do it with others. And so for me, I want to go far. So let's do it with others. I absolutely love that. Couldn't have said it better myself. If I'm getting a t-shirt made, maybe it says, do more of what makes you special. Amplify those strengths. Amplify what makes you special. Lean into that big time. I love that. I think that is awesome advice. Hopefully that's going to really help somebody early on in their career. Take it to the next level. Maybe one day 
that win a bracelet and become CIO of a big Fortune 500 company. I really appreciate the time, Sam. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to Higher Learning with me, Oz Rashid. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.